This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show is about health. We're going to look at resilience and health impacts of climate change and the sort of uh, plans at the national level we need to put in place. So later in the show, we'll be talking to Fiona Armstrong, who has written a wonderful paper for the Climate and Health Alliance, and also Dr. Cassandra Goldie, who's the CEO of ACOS, uh, Council for Social Services. But first, we'll go to Port Augusta. Well, really, we'll go to Adelaide. We're going to talk to Dan Spencer. He is uh, very interested in Port Augusta and has spoken on the program before, and um, he represents um, AYCC. He's the National Campaign Director for their Port Augusta campaign, which has been going on for years. Dan, are you there? Hey, Vivian. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you, Dan. And I'm interested in talking to you today because I know Port Augusta, the big solar plant, hasn't been put up there yet. It hasn't been approved or, you know, the, we, we haven't got the go-ahead yet for that. But quite a bit of controversy has been happening around the South Australian renewable energy, um, which has been getting a bit of press. And um, I'd like you tell, to tell us about the recent high prices in South Australia's electricity market. And I think it must have been the enemies of renewable energy who really got straight onto it the pointed attack and said that the fact that South Australia has far more renewable energy than the other states is what caused it. Is that true? Well, no. Um, as as they often do, um, some uh, renewable energy opponents, um, who many of whom also don't want action on climate change, um, you know, highlighted one small part of the picture and uh, blamed renewable energy. But what happened um, a few weeks ago in South Australia is there was a scheduled upgrade uh, to the interconnector with Victoria. Um, and at the same time, we had some uh, quite wild storms happening here, um, which meant that many of the wind turbines weren't actually able to generate um, energy. They had to be switched off. Um, so we were very, very reliant on expensive gas. Um, and so that pushed up the power price. Um, but what the people that really got impacted by that are the people, are the big businesses who were uh, playing the spot market, if you will. So they, rather than um, you know having a long term contract for their energy at a fixed price, like many households are on, um, they you know bid every they 
bid buy electricity every 30 minutes depending on what the price is in the wholesale market mm. and because of these high high gas prices and the wind being switched off and the interconnector going through this scheduled upgrade uh, that wholesale price went um, through the roof and so that's where um, this all started. So this was an unanticipated problem really in, in terms of the people who provide energy you couldn't have known that those two things were going to happen yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a perfect storm. I think um, there are definitely lessons in in it for everybody. Um, I don't think what we have in South Australia is perfect, and that's one of the reasons we've been advocating for things like solar thermal with storage to be built yeah. in Port Augusta, and the community's been doing that too, as well as investing in other you know renewable storage solutions to actually. Um, go into that next phase of the renewable revolution. South Australia is, um, you know, leading the way with uh, clean wind power, clean solar power. I think Queensland might have just got us there. Um, the next step for South Australia is, is to, um, you know, build these large-scale storage into our system. Yeah, well, what would trigger the installation of those large solar plants with storage that's been proposed at Port Augusta? I know the reserve capacity in that would make you much less exposed to short-term prices. Price hikes. Yeah, that's right. So, what um, what's triggered there to be concrete proposals being put forward is the South Australian government um, expressing interest in buying up to 100% of their own energy use from low carbon energy, and so that brought a company, uh, Solar Reserve, to forward to put forward a proposal. Um, to the state government um, that became public last year that they'd done that um, to build a solar thermal plant in Port Augusta and provide the SA government with power. We're still waiting on the state government here to make that decision. So um, what Repower Port Augusta has been saying to the state government is that you know they should be uh, backing solar thermal for Port Augusta and, and signing up to buy, buy power from it because that'll give the company the certainty it needs to go to the federal government and get the promises that they gave before the election to make solar thermal in Port Augusta a number one priority uh, delivered. Mm. It worries me all about this business of gas. It doesn't seem that gas is going away, though any climate-conscious person knows that gas is a fossil fuel and it's, you know, really mm. not good for the environment and not much less, you know, there's a little argy-bargy about it, but, you know, it's, it's, it has an impact on the climate. But the main reason people used to avoid it at the moment is because it's so high in cost. Could we do without gas altogether? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we do need to see a transition to 100% renewable energy and, you know, a lot of the new gas fields that are being opened up, um, if they're being opened up anywhere, are things like shale and unconventional and coal seam gas, which are obviously opposed not just for climate reasons but um, by communities across the country for things like the impact on... Um, you know, the water. Um, for the gas plants we're using here in South Australia, they're, you know, they're already existing gas-fired power stations. And as, as we transition, we know they're going to stay operating for a little bit longer, but they are also going to need to be phased out as well. Um, and so what we're saying is now's the time to actually start building those new renewable plants with storage mm. as we phase out. You know, we've already... Our, our one coal station's closed here, um, you know, the brown coal of the Latrobe Valley is not going to be open forever and needs to have a transition put in place there. Um, South Australia's gas plants are also going to have to be transitioned. And, you know, if they keep, uh, I guess, 
the gas uh, companies who are exporting their gas um, and selling it cheaper overseas keep rotting South Australian customers, mm-hmm. I think that's only going to hasten their demise. Yeah. Well, now let's move to the national energy market. This is a subject that everyone gets you know, their eyes glaze over when you say national energy market, including me, because how would I know anything about it? But I've got interested in it, and I read today in the Financial Review, your energy minister, Tom Kutsantonis, he said that um, he's going to a meeting next week, push, and he'll be pushing for a truly national electricity market, like a national, you know, with a greater interconnection. And he said the idea is yep. that clean renewable energy could be sold into other states to help those states and the nation meet renewable energy targets. Well, can you tell me what is stopping this in the national energy market at the moment? Yeah, so right now, South Australia, um, you know, if, if say, say you're in New South Wales, uh, the New South Wales um, customers are connected to the Queensland energy market through the grid and they're connected to Victoria. So they're sitting in the middle, whereas in South Australia... Um, we're only connected by one line to Victoria. So if that goes down for whatever reason, then we run into some problems like we saw a few weeks ago. Um, so we haven't got this truly national scheme. So what's, what the energy minister and the state government are suggesting is that we build another um, interconnector into, from South Australia into New South Wales that would allow us to build more renewables and export uh, more renewables into other states, but also have it go the other way as well um, while um, Australia is transitioning. Because, you know, South Australia is, is far ahead in um, in renewable energy compared to many other states. Oh, it so, is. Yeah. Um, what are you up to now? I think we're, you're we're aiming for 50% by 2030 or something. What are you up to now? Uh, we're aiming for 50 by 2025, and um, we're over 40 now. Great. Uh, it might, I'm not. It might might even be a bit higher. And I think with the closure of the Port Augusta coal station and with um, you know, a few new projects being put forward, I think um, we're going to pass that 50 percent by 2025, uh, well before. So, with that grid line into New South Wales, that would be a boost also for you to produce more renewable energy, wouldn't it? That's right. And you know, one of the reasons that South Australia has more renewables than other states is uh, because the state government didn't get in the way and also because we've got, uh, by putting in place things like regressive planning laws and whatever, Mm -hmm. um, but we've also just got a great renewable resource. We've got a lot of wind and we've also got a lot of sun and we've got a competitive, you know, to talk up South Australia, we've Mm -hmm. actually got a competitive advantage over many other states. So by building a more truly national uh, decentralised energy market, um, we'll be able to export and build more renewable energy. And and that's great for places like Port Augusta because, you know, Adelaide, South Australia uses a certain amount of energy, but there's a lot more used interstate. And so if we can tap into that, we can see more renewables be built. Oh, it's got to happen. Well, um, just tell us the latest thing with the Port Augusta solar plant. Um, There was a company that was considering it. Well, what's happening now? Yeah, so... As I mentioned before, we're waiting for the state government to decide if they will sign up to buy power from uh, solar thermal in Port Augusta. So we're really ramping up our campaign here. Um, And there's going to be some things happening tomorrow um, around that to call on the the Premier and the state government to to make it happen because tomorrow is actually the um, anniversary, it's the three-month anniversary of the uh, Port Augusta coal station closing. Okay. So you're ramping up the pressure to force them to make or get them to 
closer to making that decision. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we think we've waited long enough. Oh, sure. Uh, I feel I've waited long enough ever since I started this prog- on this program. You know, we've been reporting on Port Augusta, but really the community solidarity there is fantastic. You've really been all the way there, and I think a lot of the people in the parliament have been pretty good too when I've spoken to them. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's, it's really positive. And, you know, a piece of good news that um, happened late on Friday is that uh, a solar PV and wind farm has um, just been approved uh, for development approval in Port Augusta. Oh. So that's uh, not the solar thermal plant, but it's no. another renewable project, and it's um, right across the road from the old power station, and it's just been oh. approved. So is that the one that John Hewson had something to do with? Is that that one? Uh, it's an, it's another one actually by okay. a company called DP Energy. All right. Okay. Good. Well, I've got one last question to ask you, um, <clears throat> Dan. It's the, the the state energy ministers will be meeting the federal energy minister Josh Frydenberg next week, but he is yep. also the minister for the environment, and so we are in a climate emergency. And I'd like to know what innovations to the national energy market could be made so that it rapidly phases out burning coal and gas. Some people just say put in, it must be provided with environmental values or something like that. But what what do you think could be a, a short, sweet demand that they could make? Yeah, well, one really, really simple thing uh, would be, so the national electricity market has a... Um, it has an operating objective, um, and currently it doesn't consider climate change or environment. So, if you just change the wording of the um, the objective to basic to be transitioning Australia to 100% renewable energy, that would mean that all the bureaucrats, all the boffins, everyone else working in the national energy market would have that as their stated objective, yeah. and so that would enable a whole bunch of things to be done. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing, I think. You know, they could come to an agreement on boosting the federal renewable energy target, backing in uh, the existing state targets, um, and really, you know, committing to working together to work out how Australia transitions to renewable energy, because that's that's the critical thing. That's great. Well, I think Josh Frydenberg might just be that person who will do that, so I'm really hopeful. Thank you very much, Dan, and I'd just like to give AYCC a bit of a plug. I was at a rally this morning about Hazelwood and Ellen Sandell spoke, and she used to be in AYCC. She's now in Parliament. I also interviewed someone today way up in you know, in the Gulf, oh no, Galilee Basin area, who is an AYCC person from a group called Seed. She told me she was AYCC, and I thought, oh, you, you people really do well bringing people on and into oh, public life. Much. So good on you. You're a good spokesman thank too. Yes, so th- appreciate it. Thank you for talking to us and thank you um, to for your work. So that was Dan Spencer no from thank South you. Australia. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. Um, now I think we've got time for a bit of music and then uh, we'll speak to Fiona Armstrong. You're listening to 3CR Radio. There's a cold rain on the autumn wind A brother murdered in Sydney town Mark for brother on the supposed eagle Covering his home, gunned him down We say, oh, 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 Gunned him down Sad rivers of tears to hundred years In the river of fear Gunned him down They took him out of point blank range in his home with his small young son.
Back to the Beyond Zero Emission Show. Now we're going to look at health. Now, listeners, I just mentioned that uh, meeting I went to this morning about Hazelwood, and it sounds like the Morwell mine fire and the failure to protect the community health has taken away any of the social licence they might have had, the coal industry. So tonight's topic is health and preparing communities for the climate emergencies that we will see impacting on health and well-being. As the Victorian Minister for Health, Jill Hennessy, said, the Latrobe Valley community raised concerns about the impact of the mine fire on their health, but these were ignored by the former government. We have listened to their concerns and we are putting the health and well-being of families in the valley first. So that's good news. And our guest is Fiona Armstrong, and that's nearly the title of her paper. Her Alliance of Health and Medical Professions is called CAHA, and they're calling for a national strategic response to the health impacts of climate change. So welcome, Fiona, and sorry to make you wait. How are you? No worries. I'm great. Thanks, Vivian. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to hear your voice. Look, your letter to the Federal Minister for Health, Susan Lay, says that cutting emissions will improve health. What specific policy would you like to see to protect coal-affected communities? We have a national standard about particle pollution, but I think it's still continuing to cause strokes and heart attacks and premature births, isn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, dealing with climate change is obviously a very complex issue, so it doesn't really come down to a single policy. And, in fact, that's kind of the context of the campaign that we're launching at the moment is, really to say that there needs to be a very comprehensive and integrated response to the health impacts of climate change. So it isn't just about dealing with the air pollution from coal-fired power stations or um, just about dealing with infectious diseases or vector-borne diseases that are spreading because, you know, we've got a warming planet and a change in our regions. We really need a a comprehensive and, and, and strategic approach, as you said. So... Yes, I mean, that, that sort of national approach, should we have one, um, should include policies that support the health of communities who are in coal-affected communities. And the best way to support the health of those communities is to close down the coal-fired power stations as quickly as possible sure. and, um, and to help those communities transition to a new, you know, regional economy. So this is work that ought to have begun decades ago we've known from you know the united nations framework convention on climate change that we had a global obligation to cut emissions for the last 25 years so it's not shouldn't be news to anyone mm-hmm. and um and the evidence about the health impacts of coal goes back for many more decades than that so um it is a kind of a a collision of um, priorities and rationales in terms of the fact that, you know, there are policies that you can implement um, that both address health concerns and achieve emissions reductions at the same time. Yes, and I... it's certainly a mix of those that we would want to see in a national strategy, which is what we're calling for. Mm. Uh, have you got any chance of meeting the um, health minister? Look, I certainly hope we do. We haven't yet, um, and we're still waiting for a response um, for our letter uh, sent in July, but we appreciate that, um, you know, the post-election time is a busy time, so we uh, anticipate hearing from her soon once she's settled in. Um, She was the health minister before the election, um, but nobody was much, apart from ourselves, was calling... um, 
for the federal government and the health department to do something on climate change. So a lot of the focus for action on climate change has really centred around the climate and energy and environment ministers. And um, we have been part of that push, you know, because they are the ones who have been making the the decisions about climate change. Um, But there's a couple of key things that that have happened that are supporting our platform in terms of a call for a national strategy on climate health and well-being and um, explicitly really requiring the health minister to get involved. And those things are, one of them is a global survey of national climate and health plans that we led last year for the World Federation of Public Health Associations. Yes. And that provided um, an overview or a baseline, if you like, about what countries are doing around the world to protect their citizens from the health impacts of climate change. And they found we're lagging, didn't they? According to your report, they said we're lagging behind. That's right. Yes. Well, it wasn't a complete surprise to us to find that, but, but it was it is useful to have that evidence to see, you know, how Australia fares in terms of a global scorecard. And um, it's it's not the worst, but it's certainly not doing well and it lags well behind comparable countries in terms of, you know, wealthy developed nations in what they're doing. And the other reason for the health minister or the other kind of explicit obligation for the health minister to get involved in climate policy is the Paris Agreement And our organisation, along with many around the world, have been campaigning and advocating for many years for health to be central in the global climate change negotiations and for it to be recognised in the global climate agreements in the sense of policies and programmes and funding that's applied. You know, it's all very well to refer to health, um, but unless you actually, you know, develop initiatives to deliver um, and um, programs that you know protect health and well-being and, and promote health. Then, um, in referring to it as somewhat meaningless. So, um, the Paris Agreement refers to the um, obliges parties to that agreement, and Australia has signed the agreement, so they're a party to the agreement. Um, and it obliges parties to consider their citizens' rights to health in the context of climate change. But it <clears throat> also, and perhaps. Even more importantly, it refers to the obligation or the responsibility of parties to the agreement to consider the health co-benefits from, of climate policies when they're making climate policy choices. Yeah, well, so basically, what that means is when um, um, when when governments are making decisions about the climate policies that they choose, the, the Paris Agreement obliges them to to, to think: Well, what will this mean for people's health and well-being? Is there a risk? to people's health and well-being associated with that strategy? And if so, then we need to choose another one. Um, or are there health benefits arising from that strategy to reduce emissions? As in, will it be good for health? Will it will help reduce ill health? Um, and then those are the kinds of strategies that we need to choose. So it brings a really new complexion to the decisions that we make about climate policy if we are to um, realise our obligations under the Paris Agreement. Well, Fiona, what would be world's best practice if we're lagging behind? I think a lot of people say, look, we have wonderful hospitals, terrific emergency departments, and we've got excellent emergency services when, you know, cyclone hits or flood breaks out. So what is the best practice? What what are the trends in other countries where the health department is more integrated with that sort of decision-making? 
Well, unfortunately, we're not really very well set up. I mean, where our health system is very overburdened. We have a far greater emphasis on um, treating illness in Australia than we need, and um, and a much you know lighter emphasis on prevention. We're spending huge amounts of money, and our health budget is increasing because we're failing to predict, pre- um, prevent, you know, pre- predictable. Um, and avoidable illnesses. Now, I can't remember quite what the statistics are, but there's quite a significant proportion yeah. of admissions to hospital are for things that would be avoided um, if we had a greater investment in better primary health care and so on. Mm. So the kinds of things that you can do by investing in better primary health care and in reducing harms to health, and that includes environmental health threats, because 25% of all illnesses globally have an environmental cause. So there's a very important driver there for us to be reducing environmental threats in addition to climate change um, because of the contribution to ill health. But really, our health system is very overburdened. I mean, um, you know, and and you would know um, that people who work in the health sector are under a lot of pressure. And unfortunately, what climate change does is it's a threat multiplier. And so it, it just increases the burden. And so we're already seeing um, increased burdens on hospitals and health services from climate change. And that's from a whole range of things when, when people are, um, you know, experience bushfires and there's loss of livelihoods and homes and, you know, the illnesses and injuries that come along with that and also with floods and um, and also the heat stress that we experience in our ever-increasing um, ever hot summers. So that creates an additional burden on the health sector, which is often not anticipated in terms of the preparedness of um, you know, in, in terms of staffing, but also in terms of infrastructure. I mean, I think that we probably have many hospitals in Australia that don't have a climate protection plan or I'm, I'm not aware of one that really has a very comprehensive climate no. resilience plan that would make sure that they have, you know, are doing risk management to make sure that they're not affected by extreme weather. Um, One of your um, members, uh, Dr Peter Sainsbury, spoke to us once before and he told us about the hospitals in other countries that they're putting the emergency department up in flood-prone areas onto the first floor, for example, so that you can row a boat with emergency cases to the emergency department and the emergency department will have a generator up there and it'll all be purring along. It won't be put out and it's important to ensure that the infrastructure... um, of society is actually climate proof a bit so that when you have an emergency it's not impossible to get help from a hospital for example well exactly and i think hurricane katrina was a very um sobering lesson for the health services in new york because there was lots of um, hospitals that had backup generation for when the electricity system failed but they were in the basement Mm. and they they were flooded so they weren't working. So you had, you know, large tertiary hospitals without any communications whatsoever having to evacuate very large numbers of people without any communication systems. So you had lots of people sort of being discharged out to who knows where without, you know, their um, medical history or diagnosis accompanying them. And, you know, they're already 
at risk because they're in hospital, they face a further risk because of the event that's occurred and then because of a breakdown in systems, then they put it in, at, a, at, another, at another risk. So, you know, there's lots of things that, can, that need to be considered. So I wish I could point you to, you know, a best practice in terms of climate planning in the world. I don't think that there is one yet. I think that there's a huge gap between what needs to happen and, um, and what is happening. But I guess one of the things that our survey revealed is that there is pockets of, you know, good work. And um, even though the people globally like to regard the US as a kind of climate villain, and, um, and in terms of their efforts to cut emissions, they're not much better than Australia. But in terms of their preparedness, for the health impacts of climate change, even though they've struggled to get through comprehensive climate legislation and had to rely on their, you know, clean energy, clean power bill to um, to deliver a lot of them, their emissions reductions, they have invested in programs that um, around climate and health research. They have invested in surveillance for, um, you know, diseases and, and illnesses and, and climate risks to people's health and well-being and they've provided quite comprehensive guides for public health departments to use in climate resilience planning. They've invested in educating their workforce about climate change. Um, well, and so they're doing an awful lot more than we are. And, um, and there was other, you know, surprising kind of um, leaders that came out in our study, Lithuania, for example, who knew that they were... Um, you know, leaders in this area. So, um, and South Korea not doing too badly either, but there's still a long way to go, but certainly Australia could do a lot more. Well, good. Uh, we just have a few more minutes, Fiona, and I think there are a lot, there's a lot of interest interesting details in your plan and I think what the listeners like to hear is something practical like what are the diseases that nurses and doctors are seeing now you know the increase of perhaps Ross River fever you said in the Murray-Darling area I hadn't thought of that but um, what I'd like to talk is a bit broadly the regional response and in your discussion paper you said that there will be increasing pressure on Australia and its defence force to maintain domestic and regional stability well I would hope we'd also see there a chance to be a good neighbour and you gave a case in in your um, paper of uh, Papua New Guinea in 1997 when there was an El Nino drought which destabilised society quite a lot and a lot of disease broke out and the Australian Federal Police were sent up there to help. It was quite a costly operation but we went and helped. Can you tell us what opportunities you can see in the health sector for us to help our region because really we're all going to be stressed by the rising um, tides and the, the heat waves and these things, a lot of countries nearby are much less capable medically to deal with things than we are. Yeah, look, I think that's right and I think the Papua New Guinea example is kind of a good one. I mean, and it's our best example of our, our most needy and our most ignored neighbour, really. I mean, Australia's treatment of Papua New Guinea has been shameful over many decades and I think you know where that comes to impact us is you know where poor infrastructure and poverty and and poor systems and, and including those of governance lead to societal breakdown and a, and a, and a failure of services to, to um, help protect citizens and so you know we're equally vulnerable to outbreaks of disease as our uh, our developing neighbours, and I think we, as a wealthy country, we have an obligation to 
um, look after them, to support them. And really, you know, I think taking the attitude that um, healthy neighbours and a healthy region is the best way to ensure sort of regional stability and um, and our own security because, um, you know, climate change is, is going to increasingly drive waves of refugees. And if we think that refugees... Um, and global migration is a problem now, well, you know, just wait a bit until we've got another couple of centimetres of sea level rise and we have, you know, massive storm surges and further glacial melt, which is going to lead to very dramatic flooding and millions Mm. of people who are in Bangladesh who are going to be swamped. Um, That's right. We uh, we have to... Pose a threat to the world. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, I have to finish there, but um, thank you very much. And I hope when you do have that meeting with um, Minister Susan Lay that you can raise some of these global issues as well, because I think your members are really very well placed to to support you. Um, so thank you very much, Fiona. And I hope the reader, the listeners, will read your paper. It's on the Climate and Health Alliance website, and it's called. Could you just say the name? Towards a national strategy on climate, health and well-being in Australia and we'd be pleased to hear people's feedback on it and what their concerns are about climate yeah. change and health. Okay, thank you. We're going to talk to Cassandra Goldie now so we'll talk about community resilience which feeds into the same idea. Thank you very much, Fiona. Great. Thanks, Vivian. Thank bye-bye. Okay, bye. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. And I hope you enjoyed that last interview with Fiona Armstrong, the concept of bringing the health minister in on climate talks is very good because that has a huge impact on us doesn't it on our health if we're flooded or if we're caught up in a heat wave or a cyclone we need the climate policy to be integrated with our health so the next person is from a peak body her name is dr cassandra goldie she's the ceo of acos the australian council of social services so we're going to look at how this plays out in communities now they are the national voice for people affected by poverty and inequality. So they really defend the most vulnerable members of our society who are on the front line of climate change. Like, I'd like to welcome you, Cassandra. Are you there? I am. Good thank, evening. Thank you for taking our call. I, I heard you speak in Sydney and uh, you were at a meeting with the Reverend Willie Bennett from uh, America who was telling us about how they suddenly had 
the cyclone, Hurricane Katrina victims coming, 25,000 mm-hmm. 25, people on buses, a huge number were coming. They had to suddenly work it out what to do. And you had a, um, you told us then, you added on to that by saying, yes, sometimes you are in a situation like that, and you were in Darwin with a cyclone on the way, and you realised you needed a plan. So can you tell the listeners that little story and then tell us about the national strategy? What At the national letter, le- level, what is the strategy for disaster resilience that ACOS yes, is part well, of? Look, the, the story I shared was uh, from a number of years ago before I was working with ACOS as the national um, peak body for community services in Australia. I used to work um, at the Darwin Community Legal Centre um, and I um, moved um, up to Darwin to take on um, working with that great community organisation um, and within a very short period of time I found myself um, right in the thick of it where um, we got the um, alert coming through that um, a, a large cyclone was on its way. It was actually a Category 5. It was the same um, uh, strength as Cyclone Tracy had been from the Cyclone Selma. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as the manager of that community legal centre, I found myself needing to very quickly um, work out what needed to be done. And uh, um, I realised that, you know, we um, it hadn't been at that point something that was, you know, um, actively discussed in the workplace. Um, I went to my computer thinking, oh, maybe I should write a policy and, of course, realised very quickly there was not time to do that. Mm. And um, so we came through it. Um, but what really, um, uh, uh, fortunately, that cyclone turned and it um, overnight, I was up until 3 o'clock in the morning watching the alerts and, um, fortunately, we didn't have to go into um, the underground shelters. Um, but during the course of that that um, day, um, we had people coming into the community legal centre, cl- existing clients of ours, looking for shelter, looking for advice. Um, if that cyclone hit overnight, we would have known a lot of the people who would have been the most vulnerable as existing clients of that community legal service, um, who we would have needed to make sure did they get where they needed to go. Many of you know our clients were either. Um, living in very vulnerable circumstances, unwell, um, in some cases people who didn't have secure housing. And so at that point, it was such a compelling reminder to me of how crucial it was the role that community organisations played. And of course, many years later now for me in this role, um, we've been very committed through ACOS and the community um, organisations that work around the country in um, lifting up the voice of people who are working on the ground in the community in services like that community legal centre and making sure that we are brought into the important discussions about how to make sure that we are resilient as communities because we know that when, and as, as um, the Reverend um, talked about with um, Katrina, it will be people who are on the low incomes, people who are very vulnerable, who have, who are vulnerable in a health sense or um, because of not being in existing housing or, um, you know, with the resources behind themselves mm-hmm. to get quickly out of a location um, that we need to make sure that the emergency response um, system, that we're well um, integrated with that 
um, you know, with the very important, you know, the police um, and other emergency service, you know, um, um, uh, systems, yeah, yeah. Um, because we will be there in the community for the long haul. Um, and in some cases, you know, we will be the only ones who will know that there is somebody who may still be out there who's not getting food. Um, and we've got to make sure that we're a part of that um, response system. Well, I'm glad to hear that, but I especially noted in his talk, um, you know, after Katrina, he said community leaders were needed with good connections and it's important to make those connections before the crisis, you know, so that you have a working relationship with people. He said the, the churches were the real heroes because they already had the glue of, you know, working together and they knew each other mm. and they were able to reach mm. out. But um, this is vital. Well, We've studied this from um, because um, through ACOS, um, over the been work we've been um, actively pursuing for a number of years now, um, and we undertook the um, what was ended up being a world first in, in a survey of community organisations. This hadn't been done in any other country, where we mapped out through a survey and discussion with community organisations the level of um, uh, preparedness you know, which organisations already had plans in place and knew who they needed to be working with. Um, And we also studied um, where there had been better success stories than others and a very clear finding from that research was exactly that, that, um, for example, in Victoria, those communities, when there's been big bushfires go through there, the communities that um, are the most resilient are the ones where there were pre-existing really strong community relationships in place. So the relationships were there, people understood the different roles, the kinds of services that were in place and so were quickly able to come together in an emergency response sense to make sure that um, the right, um, you know, we knew who was vulnerable in the community, we would know how to get as quickly as possible to them and then to be able to come together with the plan about making sure that that community was able to recover well. Mm. Well, look, how could we mobilise the communities to look, you know, nationally to look out for the most vulnerable people? For example, a heat wave, we get them nearly every year and just make sure in advance that we've got people who will be able to look out for each other because I sort of see it a bit like a neighbourhood watch or you could, you could draw, you could invite in volunteers to just be alert to making sure that sick people or not just relatives but I I always think back to that Paris heat wave and 72,000 people died they were mostly poor people or elderly people a lot of them were women and they were mostly just in apartments and left with the the younger people had all gone for the French summer holidays away from Paris and these 72,000 people died of that heat wave and I'm sure it was a lot of just dehydration and just not not having been able to get out of the building to go and get some food or something. That could be fixed by, you know, having an organised community. How how could we mobilise that? So um, right now, um, through um, ACOS, and the the website is called resilience.acos.org.au, we have um, developed um, an online guide for community organisations about how to run the right checks through your organisation to see that you've considered the the basics of what you could have in place with no more resources 
and where, yes, you, you know, you will need some more resources to do it, but um, the first question is to work out what are the resources you need to make sure that you are ready to do your bit. So it's very important we do encourage community organisations to use this um, resource that we've provided for community organisations. Um, examples are, you know, have you done the check to make sure your insurance covers you in the right way? Um, we want to make sure that um, community organisations aren't wiped out themselves. I mean, the, in the analogy I gave that evening, actually, you might remember when I talked about we're always told if you fly to make sure you pull your oxygen mask down for yourself. Um, before you try and secure oxygen for a child that's with you. So the message is you've got to look after yourself to make sure that you're able to keep going to look after the people that are um, maybe vulnerable in the community. So that's um, an important part of it. What it will enable us to do at ACOS and with our state and territory colleagues, the Council of Social Service, is to continue to build up a clearer picture of, of where we're on the right track as community leaders, um, where um, we have identified there is a big gap and therefore we can, through ACOS and our, with our state and territory um, colleagues, provide a strong voice to governments about what needs to be done by them to help to resource and get behind community leaders so that we can prevent um, you know, damage where um, that's possible and to make sure that we are able to be as effective as we could possibly be if a disaster does hit. Yeah. Well, so in a heat wave, would ACOS come into play then and, and sort of, you know, if you get, say, 48 hours warning, there's several days of extreme heat going to happen, would you be then mobilising people? So mo mostly this will be done actually through the state, um, the state um, and territory bodies because often it is you know, in a specific location, and one of the one of the key lessons out of this is as much as possible, um, it's important for that to be done in a sort of through the local organisations. And so, what we are doing here is helping to provide the resources to get behind the those state and territories that are working to um, be, you know, as quickly as possible part of the emergency response um, environment. Um, I think it's very important. Obviously, we will have key um, large groups, like as we know, Red Cross plays a key role, um, you know, when it comes to um, particular kinds of emergency responses. Some of the other large charities are often out you know, very importantly, raising funding in that very quick early stage of, of warning. Um, but we all have an opportunity to be a voice. And this is where I think we are just wanting to encourage and support local leaders to be a strong voice in saying we are an area which is consistently being hit by this. We know extreme weather events are becoming more regular um, and Certainly, if there are people listening to us this evening who would like to draw on the work that ACOS has done um, to get support for their advocacy in the local community, we would certainly love to hear from them because we want to make sure that we are backing up the voice of community leaders who are always going to be the best to know in our community, in our region, with the issues that we face, this is the critical supports that we need and we'd, we'd be delighted to hear from people who are working on this out there so that we can help to back you up. Thank you, um, Cassandra. Look, but the last 
question um, is about infra- infrastructure because um, we, we spoke to Fiona Armstrong. She said a lot of illness is caused just by poor housing, poor sanitation, poor, you know, the environment in which a person lives and vulnerable people are more likely to be living in that situation. And I read widely, you know, but all kind of climate solutions everywhere. And I noticed in England they've been getting a lot of floods lately. lately. And um, after several massive floods, they started putting councils were starting to put in simple infrastructure things like toilet plugs. So they plug the toilet so the sewerage doesn't surge back up during a, a flood event. Um, also, they've encouraged people to not leave have carpet on the ground floor of their buildings, you know, to, to just have carpet on the upstairs part. Uh-huh. And emergency departments in hotel, uh, hospitals to be relocated to the first floor so people can row to the hospital if they can't get there by ambulance. And I thought these are all infrastructure things that can be thought of in advance. And I wanted to know what is happening here at the national level as far as your, you know, the meetings you go to. What do you hear about to improve infrastructure and access to the services that poorer people need? Well, I think the issue that we're raising, and I was delighted that you, you know, wanted to continue to profile the issue, is that um, we think that there is a gap there with um, a recognition that the direct experience of um, organisations on the ground who go through these events, we can definitely improve the way that we pull together the learning of, you know, small things that could easily be done to improve and make sure we're more resilient um, and how we bring that knowledge together. ACOS is we're doing one small important, we believe, important part, which is to um, provide the kind of guide to community-based organisations to say these are the things we've identified that you can do within your existing resources, as I say, um, and then to encourage community organisations to identify based on the best expertise that we've developed of the additional things that they would like to do, that they should be doing, but they would need more money or supports to get done. And so we would really want to hear from community organisations that are working on this front um, and to encourage um, them to use the resources we've got. And we would love to hear from you if you um, are striking barriers, if there are blocks in in your way. Um, The more we hear from grassroots and local community organisations about the great work that you are doing out there and for us to learn how we can be a stronger voice to back up what you're trying to achieve in some of these, you know, sometimes quite complex exercises in making sure that we've got good collaboration between government agencies and emergency services, you know, key business groups in the local communities and community organisations. But the one thing that has really struck us over a number of years now is that there is a a sort of a, it's almost like an assumption that, you know, the good work of local community organisations and volunteers, well, of course you'll be there. And, of course, community organisations will be there. But um, it is, we believe, the responsibility of government agencies to reach out to community leaders, to give them a seat at the table and to say, what can we do to help you to do your important work better? The truth is that this is an army 
you know, community-based organisations are a big army of, you know, extremely committed people working in local communities who can be mobilised um, and will usually do our very best to be there. But it's much better to be prepared and to have a government, um, uh, you know, enable um, support for those community leaders before disasters hit rather than us always learning lessons after a disaster has been and gone. Perfect. Thank you very much, Cassandra. That's very interesting and I'm glad you've given that courage to the groups who are working overtime but shouldn't be the main one. So thank you very much for talking to us. I had lots more questions. I hope we can talk to you another time. (laughs) (laughs) We'd love to. Thank you. Dr. Cassandra Goldie, the CEO of ACOS. And now, listeners, we're just going to go briefly to the Hazelwood rally. Adam Bant was talking about closing Hazelwood. Climate advisor to the G8 and to Angela Merkel in Germany and who said, um, you'll have to imagine the German accent, I'm not going to do it, you can imagine it, but who said Look, we Europeans look at you in Australia and we scratch our heads. And we look at you in Australia with your abundant wind, your sun, your tides. You're surrounded by water. And we wonder, we look at your smarts, the intellectual capacity that we've got. And we look at your advanced manufacturing capacity. And we wonder, why is it Germany and Europe that is left to lead the world in the generation of clean energy? Why isn't Australia a renewable energy superpower? And that's the opportunity that we've got. And what we've got here in Australia is an outdated energy system that's essentially a series of copper and aluminium lines out into coal mines. Now, we have that not because a bunch of people sat around and decided how can we wreck the planet and wreck Australia. It was just, at the time, the way that they thought that you could power a society. But it turns out that powering a society by burning fossil fuels and by burning coal comes at a huge cost. It comes at a huge cost and we know that now. And so we've got all the knowledge that we need to get rid of coal and get onto clean energy and support the workers in that transition. We can no longer plead ignorance and we haven't been able to plead ignorance for some time. And that's why it's so crucial. That's why it's so crucial that we come out and send a message to the companies that are making money from burning coal that it is immoral. It is immoral to continue to make a profit out of something that will destroy the planet and wreck the way of life that we want to so desperately preserve here in Australia. And just as people like you got together to say we need to end the use of asbestos in this country because there was a time when people thought that we could use asbestos safely and then we found out that you couldn't. And just as people like you came together and said it is time to end the use of and the peddling of tobacco because we now know that tobacco kills people. Now coal is the next asbestos. Coal is the next tobacco. And it is time that the companies that make a profit out of it got out of that business and started making their money out of something that does not kill people and that does not damage our way of life. And that is why it's so crucial. That's why it's so crucial that we step up the fight now. We step up the fight to divest from fossil fuels and we step up the fight to call on customers of simple, Simply Energy to say there are ways of powering your house that don't involve burning fossil fuels. And that is the message that we need to get out for the next little while. Because if we get that message out, then the people who are the co-owners of Hazelwood will realise why one part of them is saying it's time to get out of coal and we'll say, well, let's join with that 
and let's do the same. And once we close the country's dirtiest power station, once we have Hazelwood closed because it is the country's most polluting power station, we need to make the switch to clean energy. It will be the first domino that falls and they will start closing right around this country. And we've got a very special response. So that was Adam Bant at a rally this morning, you know, trying to push the envelope about Hazelwood, which I got from someone else in the crowd that, you know, they're very close to closing and um, we'll report on it as soon as that happens, listeners. As he said, we've got a very respons- big responsibility in Victoria to, to push that very dirtiest one um, into closure. So thank you very much to our guests tonight. We had Fiona Armstrong from Climate and Health Alliance, Dan Spencer from AYCC in Adelaide and Dr Cassandra Goldie from ACOS. So we've covered, you know, resilient communities and health tonight and I hope it's given a lot of seeds for thought and for action to you. Um, uh, thank you also to the team tonight, Andy on panel, uh, behind the scenes, Teddy and Roger and very much thank you to you for listening. Please stay tuned for Save Albert Park and if you're free on... Thursday night, 11th of August at 7pm, catch the number 86 tram from Burke Street to Northcote Town Hall. Last week we interviewed the actors and so on and they're putting on a show called Creating a Climate for Change and the name of it is Playback Theatre and I believe it will be sensational. So don't miss it if you can get to Northcote Town Hall next Thursday, this Thursday really, 11th of August at 7pm. Thank you, Andy.